Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to author John Rosengren, primarily about his book, Blades of Glory, The True Story of a Young Team Bred to Win. This book is the, for those who are Friday Night Light readers, aficionados, this book is the Minnesota high school hockey equivalent to Friday Night Lights. It covers an entire team from the start to the end of a season and gives you the roller coaster ride that that entails and gives you a brief glimpse into a slice of life of these individual players in high school hockey in Minnesota in general. John and I also get into a discussion about sports, about his background as a writer, about his current book, A Clean Heart, and it's a lot of really great topics. And I was super excited to talk to John as I've been wanting to talk to him about this book for the longest time. So I hope you'll enjoy it. Up first, I do want to let you know about today's sponsor of the podcast. It is Snuffy. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. Shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O. The owner and operator of Snuffy is Nick Silvestri, great friend of the podcast. He designed the Detox Podcast logo. So if you like the logo and you want to go support him, head on over to snuffy.co. So stick around. My conversation with John will be right up after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, I'm very excited to say that I have the, I, in my opinion, world-renowned author, John Rosengren. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks, but I think that's only in your world that right. I'm renowned. <laughs> well, regardless, I'm very excited to talk to you. You've written a number of books. Uh, the one that is most prominent for me in my formative years was Blades of Glory, The True Story of a Young Team Bred to Win. And I'm excited to talk about that book specifically. Yes, you've got a copy right there. I've got a copy here as well. And we're going to dig into the book. And then we're also, I'm interested to talk as well about your personal experiences writing. And we can talk a little hockey. You having the North Stars, me now having the Dallas Stars, that whole... Damn you. I know, right? <laughs> Everything's bigger and better in Texas. They came down here. They got a Stanley Cup. That's all I have to say. That's all I have to say. <laughs> oh, let's just pour some salt on the wounds. But um, let, I'd love to start um, by having you give me a little bit of background on what led you to start writing in the first place. What was the drive for you? And then what was the passion to, uh, because you were, a, you are you still a sports journalist or you were a sports journalist? Well, I write frequently about sports. I've never technically been a sports journalist. Got it. So let's let's go through what were some of the early decisions you made to go down the path of being a writer and what led you to write about sports specifically? Well, I quit smoking pot when I was a senior in high school and I had to find another identity. You laugh, <laughs> but it's true, actually. Yeah, I, I have a novel that just came out um, called A Clean Heart. Yes. And it's based on the story of a young guy who at 17 gets sober and actually get this, he, his mother never forgave him because he gave up a scholarship to play D1 hockey mm. so he could get, go through treatment and get sober. Um, she's an alcoholic herself. And then anyway, this guy ends up working at a treatment center um, run by a hard drinking nun with an MBA. And um, I didn't work at one of those, or I worked at a, a treatment center, but it wasn't a nun uh, running it. But anyway, 
I got sober when I was 17 and <clears throat> I did need to find something else to do. And I, um, in a new identity and my journalism teacher in high school was very supportive of my writing and uh, I love sports. So he actually gave me a column writing about sports. And uh, then it just took off from there. You know, I went to college, um, wrote uh, uh, for the college newspaper, ended up editing the college newspaper, uh, moved to Paris to uh, live and follow in Ernest Hemingway's footsteps. Yes. And realized that it doesn't matter where you are, um, that won't make you a writer. You have to actually write. Right. And so I learned the discipline needed to do that in Paris by writing every day, came out of it with a collection of short stories called Life is Just a Party. And then I, uh, from there, you know, moved around in different things, worked in the treatment center, went to grad school, got a master's in creative writing at uh, Boston University. And um, then I, I eventually moved back to Minnesota uh, and because uh, I'll say just right up front, the hockey's better here than in Massachusetts. I'm sorry, Boston. <laughs> it's just true. Um, uh, go Gophers. Anyway, I I, I uh, started writing really full time in about 98 when I got married. And um, I was freelancing and, and freelance for a variety of publications and uh, started writing more books. And, and several of them are related to um, to sports, uh, but it's more the cultural story within sports that yeah. interested. But so anyway, that's uh, probably more than you wanted to know about my journey as a writer. Oh, and I don't smoke pot anymore either. I've been clean and sober since 1981. Well, there you go. Congrats for that. Um, I love how you talk about the cultural aspect of sports because it's so interesting to me, not just the the active sports. I think there, you know, we can talk about the enjoyment of going to a game, of getting wrapped up in the passion and the enthusiasm, the excitement, even of a Stanley Cup playoffs run or a World Cup run. I mean, there's a variety of things, Super Bowl run, right? There's a lot of things that one can get swept up in. But I think it's so interesting to look at the broad cultural impact that these sports and these specific individuals have. And so, you know, I want to start out because I want to talk about Blades of Glory, but I was I was ruminating on this last night, and I was thinking about the fact that what drew me to your book in the first place was obviously I'm from Texas, so high school football here is king, and Friday Night Lights was a huge book, especially down here. Odessa Permian, everyone was familiar with them, and so when I saw a book, you know, I think I went into like Barnes and Noble or something. They have a if you like this book, here's another book that pairs well with it, kind of a thing. And that's where I saw Blades of Glory, and it was compared to high school, or I'm sorry, Friday Night Lights, but for Minnesota hockey. And I said, this is, you know, I was playing hockey at the time. And I said, this is right up my alley. I can better identify with the players in this book than I can with the Friday Night Lights. I can identify with the cultural context of the first one, but I can understand and identify with the players in the other one. So I picked it up and I loved it, read it. But this is what I, this is the question in all of that is to say, when I think about books like Friday Night Lights, Blades of Glory, and then even recently on Netflix, we've had a couple of folks on the show to talk about it, Last Chance You, about the junior college football players. There's always been something where it's typically been a program or a team that's historically been fairly successful. And then in the time in which either the book is written or the documentary is filmed, it's oftentimes a story of the former champions stumbling and how do they pick themselves up? And I wonder, I'd love to get your thought process. 
do you feel or how do you feel it psychologically maybe impacts the players and or the coach and or the surrounding people when you have someone that's quote unquote an outsider in to view a slice of life for you the the player for a season how how do you feel that it that it get maybe not gets inside their head but how do they balance that because you you were given unrestricted access for the whole 2000 2001 season of the Jefferson Bloomington Jefferson Jaguars so i just love to know what your thoughts are on that uh, well good question i'll get to it first i have to back up and respond to what you said earlier because the genesis of this book you know friday uh, blades of glory is yes. I um, read Friday Night Lights. Mm. And probably like many other writers, you know, I thought, oh, I want to do my version of Friday Night Lights. Of and since um, hockey here is like football in Texas or basketball in Indiana, it's a religion, it's a culture, it's part of who our identity. Um, I thought, you know, hockey was the obvious, right about a high school hockey team and its season was the obvious choice. I actually reached out to Buzz Bissinger and talked to him several times as I was getting started with this. And, and for those who don't know, Buzz Bissinger, H.G. Bissinger on the yes. cover is the author of Friday Night Lights. Yes. And he was helpful in giving me some suggestions because I thought what he did so well in his book was he went into the lives of these kids and families and wrote about what was at stake for yes. them. So it yes. wasn't just about football. It was about their lives and how yes. the drama of their lives played out on the football field. And the um, broader community and what this team meant to the community. And so that's what I set out to do with Friday Night Lights. And what I found was, and, and so the genesis of it was, I happened to know the coach, Tom Satterdahl, and who at the time was the winningest active coach in Minnesota. Yes. 500 plus victories. And I was at the high school, uh, state high school hockey tournament on, um, which for us is like the Super Bowl, and really no joke. I mean, Howard Cosell came here to, to do it. Uh, Sports Illustrated has written about it. I mean, it is a big deal here. So um, I was at the state tournament, and afterward, I, I ran into Tom Satterdahl and down in the um, hallway by the locker rooms, and I said, hey, I've got this idea. I want to write a book about a program, and was wondering if you'd let me write about your program. And he said, well, let's talk. And so we got together, we talked about it and he gave, he said, sure, go ahead. And I think in part that was because, you know, a lot of really successful coaches have a rather uh, generous ego sure. in the sense of, uh, and, and so he saw this as an opportunity to get more attention for his program. Of course. And so he introduced me to the families, to the kid, the players, and, um, I think at first they were, you know, pretty excited to have this writer on board. But after a while, since I was there all the time, I just started to blend into the woodwork. They, they didn't, I think they sort of forgot that I was there or they weren't, it wasn't like they were playing to the camera, you know, right. they, they, I just became one of the group with the team. And, and, you know, I was there um, for the, every practice Saturday, I'll even let me pra put on my skates and practice <laughs> with the kids a few times. Um, you let me play in there. Uh, they had a few fun games that he you know just sort of inter inter-squad scrimmages he right. let me play in um i went out to the bar with the parents after after the game and i sat with them in the fan stands i was with the team in the dressing room between periods when saturday was talking to him i was uh you know went to the had they invited me to their homes to have meals with them uh, i spoke at their team banquet you know i was just kind of part of the group sure uh, and and so got accepted and so i think they 
I don't think it did affect the dynamic of the team or of their interactions. I think they, I was able to see can, uh, candidly what happened with these kids yeah. and their families and their, the coaches and their lives. So uh, I was grateful for that because I wouldn't want them to be uh, inhibited by my right. presence. And it turns out they weren't. That's good. I know that something that I've wondered from, you know, you talk about playing to the camera, the last chance you there's, there's a lot of times in, in some of the episodes where you see almost like the opposing team less. So I think as the season and series goes on the, the, uh, home team that they're viewing, but the opposing teams will almost amp amp up their performances to try and really win and put on a good show, quote unquote. And so I love the the fact that from a writing perspective, you know, there's no cameras, there's no sound crew, there's no glitz and glamour in that sense. You're able to kind of blend into the background and just be a fly on the wall. But to that point, was there a specific time? Well, you you, you reference in the book, but I would say, how did you wrestle with when you? because you're a fly on the wall, seeing stuff that you felt might have been problematic for some of the players um, and deciding whether or not you should intervene. Because on the one hand, you're trying to capture life as it happens. But on the other hand, do you have that duty as as a, as an individual to speak up and say, hey, there's some problematic things going on. I want to draw your attention to it. How did you kind of decide that internally? I did face that moral ethical dilemma during the course of my reporting and, and writing this book there's an old saw no cheering in the press room or in the press box and what it means is that we as journalists are supposed to be impartial right. and observers and not affecting the outcome of the action we're reporting on so that's what i set out to do midway through the season i became aware of these kids taking a supplement called ephedrine, which at the time there wasn't a lot known about. I mean, this was 20 years ago. So a lot of people didn't know what ephedrine did. I started researching it. I found out it's a stimulant. It's very close um, as a chemical cousin, uh, just one molecule different from um, ecstasy or, or, you know, the, the methamphetamine. And so uh, that concerned me in further research. I there came across an article in New England Journal of Medicine that said the highest at risk group um, or the highest, the group that was at highest risk for suffering adverse cardiac events, which was the primary risk for the uh, people using this drug was 15 year old boys. Mm. And so those were the kids, you know, this, these kids taking the supplement were at high risk for having uh, heart issues. And uh, what was happening is kids were either having heart attacks or some were even dying. And then we started hearing about this a bit more as I went on to, um, you know, start writing the book. Um, There's some event, a major league baseball player died and some others. And so it started getting, there was some press or attention to it. Well, I uh, decided, uh, oh, and I'd reached out to the families of the kids. And one father said, yeah, I know my kids taking it, but, uh, you know, a doctor told me it was fine to take. And this had been a sideline conversation. That's why I called the doctor. The doctor said, well, I was just talking to the guy on the sidelines of his kid's soccer game. And I said, oh. yeah, but, you know, if he's talking to you, knowing your physician, he's going to take what you say to heart. You know, sort of like if I'm talking to a stockbroker on the sidelines, he says, hey, I think Apple's a good buy. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go buy Apple. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I uh, face this ethical dilemma of what do I do? I'm my 
I'm conditioned to have this role of just being an observer, not getting involved. At the same time, I came to care about these kids. Like I said, they'd welcome me into their living rooms and their locker room. And they were, I, I, I had gotten to know them. I, I cared about them. And I, I was a parent myself. I felt some sort of uh, parental protective uh, obligation toward them. So I struggled with that. You know, do I, as a journalist, simply stand back and watch and wait and see what happens? Or, or as a human being who has a compassionate concern for these kids, do I step in and try to help them uh, um, prevent? So I did what I usually do in such situations. I called my high school journalism teacher who has served as a source of support and uh, been a mentor throughout my career. And I said, Roger, what do I do? And I laid it out for him and he said, listen, how are you going to feel if you're at a game and you're watching one of these kids skate across the blue line, suddenly clutch his chest and collapse? Yeah. So I, I talked to the kids. I said, listen, this is what I've learned. This is dangerous. Uh, you know, you could have a heart attack. You could uh, face serious health risks. You could die. And uh, you got to know this, you know, um, and then be aware of that. If you're going to, you know, that, uh, so that, that you can make an informed decision about what you're going to do here. Right. And I even reached out to the parents and told them some of what I'd learned. And um, I'm not sure that changed or altered their decisions at all, but it cleared my conscience. Um, And I was grateful that none of them did suffer adverse events as far as I know. But I tell you, there was a while I was scared because I didn't want to see these kids I cared about uh, be hurt or harmed. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's it's something too where it's like, you know, we're learning so much about the medical industry with regards to prescription drugs and over-the-counter medication that it's it's changing all the time and so it be, it can become very difficult to to try and assess that and then when you when you have a situation where you find out more information you know you want to make the best choice possible but it's I think that goes back to you know when we're talking about hockey being a religion in Minnesota and and really need to the need to win the need to excel the need to be able to, you know, get a D1 scholarship, get drafted, get into the NHL, provide a living for your family. I mean, all of these things are running through this 15-year-old's mind and their parents' mind, you know, and it's, it can become difficult. I remember that, you know, playing with kids where it wasn't a question like they wouldn't be taking drugs like that. But then again, hockey for us was a, was a nice to have, I think out of everybody that I ever knew and played with only one person made it, um, to professional and he never made it past. I want to say East coast hockey league. I think that was as high as he got. Um, and he was, I mean, the best of the best that I saw. So that just shows how competitive the field is in general and the win at all cost mentality. But, but, you know, I mean, it's just it, it's just crazy to me how we take things so seriously, but it's because it's not just be, I mean, it's easy as an outside observer for one to say, well, it's just a game. It's just a game. But when you peel back the layers involved in this decision, it's not just a game. There's a lot of additional factors that go into making this decision. And so I'd love to know from your perspective is what was the most surprising thing that you saw i mean we did talk about the ethical dilemma but i would say what was one of the more surprising things that you saw throughout your coverage of the book for the whole season um well i'll in answering that i'll address what you were saying earlier too about uh 
all that went into the decision the kids made whether or not to use these performance enhancing drugs. So I was a kid who loved hockey. I, I just loved hockey uh, as a young, as a kid, as a high school kid, but I wasn't good enough to make the varsity team. Uh, my senior year of high school, the coach actually kept three goalies. Um, I was a goalie. I was the fourth best on my team. So I didn't even make the cut when the coach was being generous. But um, I ended up, so I, I missed that opportunity. I would have loved to play high school hockey. I mean, I went to, um, when I was a kid, I would go to games. I'd go to North Star games. I'd go to Gopher games. And I'd go to the Wyzetta Trojan hockey games, our local team. And I loved it, you know, and I knew the players and I'd emulate them. And there was even a way that these, I'd see these guys in church and there's even a way they walked as they're going up to get communion. And I tried to emulate that, you know, not only did I try to be like them on the ice, but it's like, I wanted to embody them, you know, right. be the one of these guys. So I, I had a dream of playing high school hockey and wasn't able to do that. So when I started reporting this book, I thought that these kids playing for this elite program, not only were they varsity hockey players, but they're playing for one of the best programs in the state of Minnesota. And during the course of the season, I was uh, uh, following this team. They're ranked not just number one in the state, but number one in the nation. They were the mm. best high school hockey team in the nation. And I thought, wow, what an honor that would be. You know, wouldn't that be fun? What a kick that'd be, you know, talk about a dream fulfilled. But instead of seeing these kids just ecstatic, you know, and having fun and living out this dream, I saw these kids who felt the weight of this tremendous pressure mm. to succeed. And um, they had somewhere along the way, the joy of the game had slipped away from them and they had instead shouldered this burden and they were playing to win, not to have fun because that's what everyone expected of the Jefferson Jaguars. And as a result, you know, when they won, it wasn't so exciting. It's simply a matter of fulfilling expectations. And when they lost, they had failed miserably. And they had failed not only their coach, but their community, their parents, their cheerleaders, their friends in the student body, and themselves. And so that built this tremendous pressure on these kids to perform in it became no surprise that they turned to performance enhancing drugs. Right. And not every kid on that team was taking them, but I think there were about five, six of the kids, which was more than 25% taking these uh, performance enhancing drugs because that's the pressure they felt. Right. Um, and other kids, you know, like uh, one of the stars of the team, Matt Duncan, um, a kid, maybe my favorite kid on the team. Sorry, everyone else. But anyway, <laughs> I really liked him a lot. I call him Dunks in the book. He would, you know, had this bottle of antacid tablets that he'd be, uh, popping before uh, games and kind of constantly because he felt all this pressure you know he wasn't taking the performance enhancing drugs but the pressure was still eating away at him so i would say there were there are many things i encountered along the way that sort of i went whoa really but that was probably the biggest surprise is as an outsider thinking this would be so much fun to play for a great team and then being on the inside realizing wow this isn't fun at all these yeah. kids are feeling stressed out by the obligation and responsibility and pressure that's put upon them yeah. You know, that's a good point that you talk about the pressure. There was the reason that I stopped playing hockey and go went to a school that did not have a program in any way was because I got burned out. So I remember 
pushing it. I grew, I grew up playing hockey since seven years old, playing constantly, trying to get better, extra practice sessions, private lessons, all the works. And it culminated in a senior year where I remember, you know, somebody had, I had, my parents had paid for somebody to make footage of me, sent out, I had a tryout with a team in Minnesota, just like a, a small junior team, uh, a couple colleges somewhere up north. Um, and there was a bunch of different tryouts. Things Wait, sorry, I have to interrupt. Up north. When we say up north here, we mean in <laughs> Minnesota. Are you mean like, <laughs> uh, you, uh, well, I don't know, what's up north? Texas? <laughs> Like Oklahoma could be up north here. No, I do mean there was a junior. I think there was a junior B team in Minnesota. That was one. There was a, a college in Virginia. And then there was another college in, oh, I don't remember. I think it was, um, it's been a minute. I think it was somewhere um, in the upper Northwest. So I don't exactly remember okay. that school, but okay. that's, but those three, okay. those three programs. Yeah. Not, not Oklahoma, not OU. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which literally could be north for us. Um, but I just remember getting those tryouts or the invitation to camp, I should say, the invitation to the camps and chatting with the coaches and talking to the recruiters and going through the rigmarole. And just I remember sitting after a game where we had lost my varsity year, we were my junior year, we did great. We made it all the way to the semifinals of the the regional championships and then lost and missed out on going to state. But my senior year, we just were absolutely terrible. Most of our best players were in my senior or the, my junior class. They graduated. And I just remember sitting after a particularly harsh loss and just having all those, those conversations earlier in the day with the recruiters and the coaches and going, I'm just burned out. I've been doing this for so long. I don't even want to do it anymore. I want to be as far away from this as possible. It's not fun anymore, right? It wasn't fun anymore. I didn't see a path forward. It was difficult. And so that was what led me to eventually stepping away from the sport from a playing capacity and just being able to be a fan. But I think about that when we read about the book and when you talk about the pressure that the kids face, I think about if I was feeling burnt out and I was feeling the weight of all this pressure and I did not have the future and the potential of that these kids did, I can only imagine the weight of the world on their shoulders. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Well, that's what I say is, uh, you know, like one of the kids, the captain, Tommy Gilbert went on to play in the NHL for yes. a decade. Um, a couple of kids played division one hockey, um, couple more played division three, but um, you know, I don't think any of them are playing now. I run into them around town every now and then. I don't think any of them are, are still playing uh, maybe a couple, but it's like, I say that I was blessed with mediocrity <laughs> as a kid because I didn't have the love of the game bled out of me. Right. I mean, I'm 56 years old. I still skate on Sunday nights with a bunch of old guys yeah. because uh, and, you know, it's an empty arena. We're not playing for any glory. We're just playing for the fun of it. Right. And uh, I still love the game, but it's because I never experienced the pressure. And so or the I, I never reached that point of burnout. Right. You know, it's like weather gets cold here. I look forward to lacing up my skates and getting back out on the ice. Yeah. Every year. And y'all y'all have ponds that you can skate on. We do not. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's, I think, where the what uh, the root of the culture is. Yes. That the ponds and lakes freeze and the Minnesota's called the land of 10,000 lakes they are actually over 15,000 lakes here. So it's like, you can't turn around without seeing a lake in Minnesota. And in the wintertime, those are skating rinks. And so you talk about skating since you were, uh, you know, growing up playing hockey. Yep. Well, you, if you started at seven, you're a late bloomer. Right. Friend. 
here, we start skating as soon as we can walk. I mean, really, I had my first concussion when I was probably two or three years old from falling uh, on my skates and hitting my hand on the ice. So we, um, it, it is that ingrained in the culture, uh, but because we start playing on the outdoor surface. Yep. Um, and I, I just want to, as a little side, I'd say there's a great movie that explains the culture of hockey, and it's an ode to the joy of hockey here in Minnesota called pond hockey Ooh. and i'd recommend it as um for anyone who's interested in the game of hockey um and it does t- look at hockey elsewhere too but it's primarily here in minnesota and the love of the game i love that that's mm-hmm. awesome yeah no it's it, it's it, it's so funny we were chatting a little bit before we got started but i was thinking about the fact that when you know the reason that i started playing when i was seven is the stars didn't come down until the early 90s so i turned five and 92 and then when i was seven the stars had finally started not sucking when they first came down here it was it was very bad um and nobody was really thrilled my dad actually used to work for there was a minor league hockey team down here called the fort worth fire played in the central hockey league and they won the championship in 97 and so that actually outdrew the stars for a period of time because they were successful and the stars were not i remember on the night the stars i'll never forget this the night that the fire won the championship the Dallas Stars got eliminated in the first round of the Western Conference playoffs by the Edmonton Oilers. And it was like game five or game four. I mean, it was really bad. And like an hour later, the fire were lifting the championship to a packed arena because everybody wanted to see a winning team. And sure. so, but but I remember the Stars started gaining in popularity. And, and when they won the Stanley Cup in 1999, everything exploded. Everything exploded. They started building rinks all over the place. There was popularity for hockey that had never been seen before in Texas, in my opinion. And and I just remember growing up in this culture of everybody Everybody I knew played hockey. I think most of the gateway was roller hockey first, then ice hockey. But then it became where no one was even doing roller hockey. Everybody was just starting in ice hockey. And then it started petering out because the Stars were successful for a time and then dipped down. And... And now I think the stars are starting to be successful again. So you could you could probably see a little bit of popularity come back up. But I would say, what was it like, just from a purely selfish perspective, I want to know, what was it like having a team like the North Stars that had been there so long in Minnesota and then get relocated down to Texas and then not having a team until the Wild came around like a while later? Was it the... It was like the, having your heart ripped out. Right. So it, um, you know, I grew up, as I said, going to North Star games, yes. they were more expensive. So I didn't go to as many North Star games as I did uh, go for hockey games or even high school hockey games. But my dad would get season tickets, he'd a package, he'd split with some buddies. So we'd go to four or five games a year and, and he had two seats. And so, you know, I had to split that up with my brother and my sister. Yep. But, um, you know, I loved the Met Center. I was just reminiscing with a guy about that earlier this week. Uh, that's what was the home of the North Stars. And there were these guys we just loved, like Bill Goldsworthy um, did the Goldie Shuffle. And he was just a, a lovable yeah. guy. Or even later, um, you know, Mike Madonna, who became oh. a, a legend there. But I remember yes. when he came up um, and uh, Aaron Broughton, sorry, Neil Broughton is yes. a, uh, you know, local legend here. Because of the 1980 um, and, Olympics. Well, exactly. Yeah. And uh, his brother Aaron was actually one of the last guys cut on that team uh for the yes, Olympics. that's right um but he it, it, and there was another a younger brother Paul and all three went on to play in the NHL but um so anyway it was 
we loved this team, you know, and, and here's the other thing is like, I remember watching Neil Bratton play high school hockey for Rosso. Oh, and wow. then I remember watching play at the U and then the Olympics. And then I, and then he played for the North stars. Right. And that was the trajectory of a lot of guys on those teams. You know, we'd seen them in high school. And so we knew yeah. who they were as kids. And then we saw them develop into these uh, NHL players. So there was just this, this love for these, the team, John Casey, the goalie. Yes, yes. I mean, he defected. He grew up in Grand Rapids, won state tournaments there with them. Then he defected and played for the University of North Dakota, Hiss. But then he redeemed himself by coming back, playing for the North Stars. And then they changed their name to the Stars. Yes. That was the first sign something was You're wrong. Right. That's right. But I tell you, when they moved, there was, I don't think there was a person more reviled in Minnesota than Norm Green, the owner oh, who took yep. him down I-35. Yep. And I think still, well, I know still, if you mention Norm Green's name to a hockey fan, they'll spit. They, I mean, he is still, uh, we've not forgiven him yet. That's a, um, they say, uh, you know, like uh, Minnesotan Alzheimer's is you forget everything but the grudges. Well, um, that's one that's uh, many of us will take to our grave. So anyway, it was like having our heart torn out of us. And then the fact that the wild didn't come till 2000, 2001. So the that's right. That's right. The year that I was reporting or the year that I was following the Jefferson Jaguars, I was actually um, the, the Minnesota wild that were having their first season. So I was able to weave that into the book, that's but right. it wasn't like we were left without hockey because the university of Minnesota has a very proud tradition, you know, a college being a premier college hockey program. Um, they've fallen on hard times lately, but so we still had the gophers here. There were actually five division one, hockey programs in Minnesota uh, during that time. So it was not only the University of Minnesota, it was University of Minnesota Duluth, yep. Mankato, Bemidji, and St. Cloud State, which That's right. started in uh, yes. 1989. And Tom Satterland's kid was one of the first players recruited for that team. Um, and he, but anyway, um, he, uh, er, so we had hockey here. And then like I said, high school hockey, I mean, it, it was, still a great game and a good, you know, we'd go watch high school hockey games. It didn't feel like we had, we'd lost the top tier, right. but we hadn't lost hockey. Yeah. So we didn't have the NHL here anymore. And it seemed like wrong that places <laughs> like Tampa and uh, Dallas would have teams when Minnesota didn't, <laughs> yes. but um, you know, San Jose, uh, right. Phoenix, I mean, what the hell? Right. But, um, anyway, it, it just seemed like, the right thing for the NHL to put a, a franchise back here. And, yes. you know, they paraded the, or celebrated that decision with the mayor riding a Zamboni down the street to yeah. St. Paul. <laughs> so fitting. That's uh, right. Thing. You know, I feel like it was just yesterday that the wild were having their first season. And then we talked about it being the, the same season as the season that you covered in blades of glory. And it's just, it's astounding. That's like, Oh, right. They have been around for 20 years now. And, but it just, well, let me, sorry, let me just say about that too. And this is the high school connection. Like the first goal scored at XL energy center by a Minnesota wild player was scored by Darby Hendrickson. Darby Hendrickson played at Richfield high school, right. you know, just down the road from us. We watched him there. Then he played at the university of Minnesota. Then he played for the hometown uh, NHL team. It was like, that's again a, a, an example of how we've embraced or how, how hockey kind of just stays with us or um, uh, how these guys, um, what they mean to us. You know, they, right. they, it's not like we suddenly recognize them when they're in the NHL. We've known them since they were kids growing right. up. Definitely. It just, it just seemed so wrong to not have a 
professional franchise in Minnesota. It would, it, it, to me, it felt like the equivalent of it, if the the Cowboys had left Dallas and just gone somewhere else. It's like, oh, yeah. there's not a professional football team in Texas. It seems a little weird. Right. No one, no one likes the Houston Texans. I don't care who you are. If you're from Houston, you also don't like the Texans. Don't kid yourself. Nobody likes the Houston Texans. They're awful. Just well, we hate the Dallas Cowboys too. Just oh, to be fair. fair. That's totally fair. Drew Pearson pushed <laughs> off on Nate Wright back in, I think it was 1978, in the championship game uh, at Mets Stadium. Right. And uh, Dallas won and, and Minnesota didn't. So we haven't That's forgiven right. Drew Pearson either. That's right. That's right. I forgot about the Vikings too in that game. Oh, my goodness. But I want to know, as we're starting to pivot towards the end, I would love to have you give us a little bit of uh, background on your decision to write A Clean Heart and what was your motivation for writing the fiction, uh, this particular fiction work, and what do you hope folks get out of it? Yeah, well, thanks. Here's that one. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, I, I alluded to it earlier. It's, it's loosely autobiographical. Um, it's a story of this young man working in this adolescent treatment center trying to help these kids um, while also navigating this dysfunctional staff run by the none with the big presence who's got a drinking problem of her own and she's trying to turn a profit he's trying to help kids and uh meanwhile his mother's dying of alcoholism and i and my mother wants you to know she's not an alcoholic by the way <laughs> but i was um wanting to just explore the world of recovery because that addiction and recovery that's a world i know well and i live and so I wanted, I, I, and having worked, I did work in a very dysfunctional treatment center. And so as I, I was able to take all these elements and, you know, come up with some characters and see what happened when they came together and uh, the story just took off from there. Um, but it, it's great fun for me writing fiction as well, because I can just make up what happens. Um, right. And uh, so I guess as far as uh, takeaway, I just hope people would enjoy the story, uh, maybe laugh at the jokes, and also feel moved by uh, the, the plight of some of the characters and what happens to them uh, in their situations. Definitely. Well, now, thank you so much for that. We're going to transition to the segment I like to call Things to Check Out. So it's a uh -huh. segment where I ask the guest, what's one thing that you're reading and what's one thing that you're listening to right now? Well, I just finished a book. I'm way behind the times. It's called Desert Solitude by Edward Abbey. Um, it was written in 1969 about his time as a being a ranger in the Moab um, or in Zion National Park uh, near Moab, um, and that that was very entertaining. And right now, I'm I'm in the middle of a book called Love Zach by a friend here in Minnesota, Reed Forgrave, and it's a story of a kid from Iowa who. Um, had multiple concussions as a high school football player and ended up having CTE mm. and being aware of it. And eventually it leads to him uh, will slide into alcohol and drug addiction and ultimately suicide. Uh, not a spoiler because that's how the book starts. Right. But uh, it, it's a very sad story. Um, you know, I think as a 25 year old young man, he took his life because he was just so racked by uh, what was happening to his mind. Yeah. Um, and then as far as what I'm listening to, you know, I listen to music. I uh, did listen to New Yorker Radio Hour podcast the other day about a woman who discovered these tapes. Her name is Maggie Robinson. And she, after, five years after dad died, she discovered these tapes of conversations he was having with another guy in the Philippines who was bilking money, took million, over a million dollars from him 
to find these hidden treasures in cave of gold and bonds hidden in caves protected by primitive tribes. <laughs> and the poor guy, uh, you know, fell for this scam. But um, over the course of about seven years, he was saying money to this guy in the Philippines and this that his daughter discovered these tapes five years after his death and was listening to these recorded phone conversations. And anyway, that was on the New Yorker radio hour. So uh, I was that's fascinated so by that story as well. That's, that's absolutely incredible. Um, so now I will transition into the final segment of the show. It is the dad joke of the week. It is a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guest in an attempt to get them to laugh while the audience groans, but I can't hear my, the audience. I can only hear my guests, so it works out. But I do like to put my guest on the spot. John, do you have any jokes you would like to offer up today? Oh, sure I do. Um, how risque can I get? Oh, very. Go right ahead. Okay. Well, here's an old chestnut. Um, <laughs> there are three couples who want to join a very conservative church and the pastor says, okay, but we have this requirement. You can't ha have to abstain from intercourse for two weeks to be eligible. And so they say, okay. So after two weeks, they, the three couples come back and he asks the first couple, elderly couple, uh, how'd it go? Uh, were you able to abstain from sex for two weeks? They say, oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. And then uh, he asks the second couple, middle-aged couple, uh, were you able to abstain from sex for two weeks? How'd it go? And they said, well, you know, we did, but the, the first week was um, not really a problem, but the second week was kind of tough. So we had to sleep in separate bedrooms, but we did abstain from, from it. And he said, well, great, congratulations. Welcome to our church. Yep. The third couple, newlyweds. He said, well, how'd it go? And the guy said, well, you know, on the second day, my wife reached for a light bulb off a top shelf and it fell and broke. And as she was bending over to clean it up, I just was overcome with this powerful urge, wasn't able to stop myself. And we had intercourse right there on the floor. And the pastor said, well, you are not welcome in our church. And the guy said, ah, it's okay. We're not welcome back in the hardware store either. <laughs> not quite a dad joke you can tell your kids, but it I sure love gets it. a good laugh at a dinner party. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I chose some uh, hockey themed jokes uh, that are going to be very grown worthy. So here we go. Uh, John, why couldn't the hockey player listen to music? I don't know, Joe. Why couldn't the hockey player listen to music? Uh, because he broke a record. That's all it was. He just broke a record. All right. Uh, why can't you play hockey with pigs? No idea. Well, they hog the puck. You see, because they're, they're pigs. So there you go. Uh, uh -huh. Last one. <laughs> why was the magician so good at hockey? I don't know. Why was the magician so good at hockey? Well, he always had a hat trick. He always had a hat trick. All right. Well, if, pe if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, John, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can visit my website, johnrosengren.net. So johnrosengren.net, N-E-T. That's like the, think hockey. Um, so that's the best way to find me. You can see uh, information about my books, about uh, articles I've written, listen to podcasts like this one, uh, read other interviews, etc. Even find updates on what happened to the kids in uh, Blades of Glory. Perfect. Absolutely great. We do need a hashtag for this episode. I was going to use hashtag Blades of Glory. Does that work for you? Works for me. All right. Well, John, thank you so much oh, for being great. Although, oh, no, yes. actually, I should back up on that. Okay. Because that'll probably direct people to the movie. Oh, you know, good point. Hollywood changed the script dramatically um, <laughs> when they bought the rights to this. And so um, <laughs> maybe hashtag John Rosengren. 
<laughs> yeah, there we go. Let's do that instead. Good point. They're going to get a lot of Will Ferrell uh, memes if they <laughs> look at hashtag right. Blades of Glory. This way they'll either find me or the realtor in Illinois. Right. <laughs> who shares my name. There we go. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for being gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Well, you're welcome, Joe. Thanks for your interest in my books. I really appreciate it. Of course. Listeners, I'll be, yeah, absolutely. Uh, listeners, I'll be back next week with another great episode. But until then, hashtag John Rosengren. And I will, as always, hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast, or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.